0: can I start with some heresy this passage was not written to Bridge North Baptist Church it wasn't Or was it why did Matthew who pulled together all the oral and the written traditions why did he put all this material here but it wasn't for you. Or was it? See, Matthew's gospel, as was explained to us quite early on, was essentially written with a Jewish milieu in mind, with people who were Jewish, people who understood the Jewish faith, but had come to believe, and there are about 25,000 of them still in Israel today. I had the joy of being with them just a couple of years ago messianic believers, people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But of course it was written to you. That's not heresy. I'm not going to get away with that. Of course the scriptures were written for you and to you. But I'm asking you to understand that originally the intention was for Jewish believers who were wrestling as I've watched churches come out of a Hindu background in India, wrestling with the real implications of the faith. Most of us have been nurtured with our own mother's milk with the faith, but here these were people who'd made dramatic, dramatic changes in their lives because they'd done something very, very non-PC in that culture. They'd recognized that Jesus was Messiah, Yeshua. I found what John did last week, absolutely fascinated, resonated totally with it because we're of a similar age and similar background. And he uh, was talking about the Sabbath. And there's a point that you really have got to grab hold of before we just begin to outline and tease out some of the things that are in the passage that we read. And the first, and the first thing is that, and it's worth if you've got your Bible so open, just referring to verse uh, 14. Because this is not a sort of nice, settled... I've been in some noisy churches in the last two weeks. This is not some nice, settled situation. This is dynamic, violent, and very, very explosive. Because Jesus has broken all their little shibboleths about the Sabbath. Done all the naughty things he shouldn't do. uh, For very good reasons, which were explained very clearly. The Pharisees were violently angry. I once counseled a couple who had a fairly violent argument with each other that descended into fisticuffs about the way the, to- uh, the, way the toothpaste was squeezed. I, I, no serious. Of course, it was a, deeper than that. But here, there's violence underneath the surface. Listen to verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. And this, because it broken their extensive understandings of what the Sabbath was, how you please God. And there are places, and Andy picked it up in his prayer, There are places around the world where today to become a Christian is to expose yourself to absolute real serious violence. And Jesus knew what he was doing and in doing what he did both to teach about the place of Christian rest, the place of the Sunday, the weekend, Sabbath, if you like, rightly understood, exploded something and they were out to get him. And you know the end of the story. They did. They got him, as they thought. And that's the context in which Matthew begins to tell the rest of the story to these Jewish believers and therefore to us. And we need to understand that as we look at it. Interesting, though we didn't look at it, interesting that before we actually get to the passage we read, in that point of conflict matthew refers back to the old testament to the isianic passages that speak of messiah there's a whole series of them 6 7 in, messiah, in isaiah and other allusions in the old testament about the role of the messiah and if you want to look at it look at it you can go and look in isaiah 42 and it's in that context that Matthew continues the story. And I wanted to explain that, because in a sense it almost impinges on how you understand what you've heard. Now I can't expand this in detail, for the very simple reason of time, but there are some fascinating things that I do want to come out. First of all, Jesus dramatically exercises A man who has been blind and mute because of demonic infestation. Now please God, the great majority of you here have never seen demonic infestation. I'm glad you haven't. I saw it several times even in the last trip. Not extreme, but I have seen extreme demonic infestations. But almost the first person to to pray, pray with me in the church the first church I preached in. Uh, which was the university church in Madurai. Was a guy who was beaming. He was just radiating Christ. Absolutely dumb. Couldn't say a word. So the, those who are. Seriously disadvantaged. By being deaf and dumb. Uh, so often. There can be a natural physical explanation. But. Jesus knew, and you may not know, but certainly Jesus knew, that there can be demonic infestations that can actually block a person communicating. I have actually seen that. Not seen a person delivered, but I've ser- certainly met a person who the pastors were quite convinced was so demonically, uh, had been so demonically afflicted as a child because of the Hindu background that they were not able to be released. And Jesus speaks the word of release. Well, the argument about the Sabbath was fairly tame. The argument about seeing a person exercised and set free and able to communicate gets even more intense. And the Pharisees really go for Jesus. And uh, they show an incredible theological naivety and, quite frankly, stupidity. Because they know he's powerful. They don't recognize that that power comes from God. They don't recognize him as God's son. The crowd were sort of trying to make their mind up. But they're going to get him. And get him they did. Because he did things like that. Which you weren't supposed to do. Jesus knew their thoughts, it tells us. And then they go through that silly argument and you heard the story and it's self-evident. It doesn't, mean my, it doesn't need my explanation. That they actually suggest to Jesus he's working in collusion with, with the devil. Well, you don't need too much intellect to work out that that's stupid. That it's civil war and if Jesus was working in collusion with the devil, that, that was a stupid argument. Of course he wasn't working in collusion. We know he wasn't. But people will say the most unmitigated nonsense to you when they're actually standing against Jesus. And I want to affirm here, and I've got it in my notes, so it obviously must have been something the Spirit impressed on me as I've been thinking about this. And I was thinking about it before I went to India because I knew my brain would be well fried when I came back. I want to affirm here, and you need to hear this said, that we do not live in a deistic world. Universe. We do not live in a universe where good and evil are equal in power. Right? You will find that perception in a lot of people. Let me say powerfully, that is not true. Power? Certainly Satan has some. But he answers to the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. I've seen that so often. Seen that in the last two weeks, where uh, there was uh, demonic manifestations. And Jesus, you don't need to do, you don't need to scream and shout. Just the name of Jesus will deal with the demonic, and that's what Jesus did there. Very simply. There's a fascinating section, and I pass over it quickly, but I allude to it. Where there's a section that has spilt a lot of theological ink about that question about those who can't be forgiven. And let me say this, the Holy Spirit is the go-between God, okay? He's the one in the Trinity, and I mustn't get too technical, he's the one in the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who facilitates all the intercommunication. And he is good beyond words, And if you end up calling the Holy Spirit bad or evil, God help you, you cannot be forgiven because you cannot ever find a way into the grace of God if you believe that the Holy Spirit is evil. The Holy Spirit is is good. And that's what Jesus was saying. And if you're going to come to God if I'm going to come to God as believers, but even before we were believers, you come because of the work of the Spirit. I had brilliant translators in, uh, in, in India. Four different pastors and two quite delightful single Roman Catholic ladies who had been professors of English at Madurai University. Spirit-filled... I don't think they would have recognized my terminology, but believe me, they were spirit-filled. And they stood next to me. And they, I took a minute on, in each case with each translator to, to get them to understand a phrase I used to use. I'll use it here and you'll understand it in English. But it just needs to be contextualized uh, to understand in an Indian culture. What you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. I think you understand straight away what I'm saying, don't you, in English? That's not difficult. It's really essentially saying that the word, the words that you speak, if they're not consistent with the person you are and the way you act, quite frankly, are valueless. And all they do, all your words do, is prove you're a hypocrite to use Jesus' words. So I was using that phrase constantly, and I don't know what it sounds like in Tamil. You have to trust your translators. But I think from the feedback I got, they got that truth, and that's exactly what Jesus said after he dealt with this whole issue of unforgivingness, or you can't be forgiven when you're blaspheming against the Spirit. Because the proof of the matter is that you prove you're a Christian by good works. Now, it's not good works to merit salvation. You know I'm fairly orthodox theologically. Salvation's a gift, free gift. But if it doesn't actually generate good works in you, then I wonder what you're in touch with. Now, again, I stress not good works that in, not good works that actually merit your salvation and your ongoing relationship with God, but good works that simply prove that something good is inside you. The good that's inside you, of course, is the Holy Spirit. I'm rushing, but never mind. The next section, and I've I've wrestled with this one and thought about this a great deal, uh, certainly pastorally, is if you look at the beginning of verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teachers, we want to see a miraculous sign. And if you'll forgive me, just a word of explanation. Every sign, you know, miracles in John's gospel are talked of as signs, aren't they? Right? You, you all know that. A sign is by definition miraculous. So what they were saying is that we, not so much that we want to see a sign, a miracle, but we want to see a miracle that is in defi- uh, uh, sort of absolutely certainly come from heaven in fact literally it's translated as a miracle from heaven paul writing later about jewish people and i will say this was true from my knowledge of jewish people they're in, incredibly damaged because of their history inevitably and their memory of their history and paul said right in 1 corinthians 1 verse 22, the Jews doesn't say ask for a sign, it says and it's a strong word in Greek demand a sign if you prove it I believe and you've never done that have you oh yes you have one of the things I've reflected, I've have a chance in retirement to think through some of the things I've done and seen and said with some minor regrets inevitably, is this whole issue of people who want to bargain with God. Right? You do this, Lord, and then... And you've never done that. Or have you? I can own up to that. It's a very human, fairly ungodly reaction. Reaction. Don't bargain with God. You can't demand things from God. He probably, because he's gracious, will deal very patiently with you as he deals very patiently with me. But you can't bargain with God. You have him on his terms or not at all. You'll have to trust him. He will explain ultimately. You may have to wait to heaven to get the full explanation. In fact, I'm certain you will. But he often graciously will explain himself. Don't demand signs from God. They were. And I'm fascinated by the psychology of Jesus and the way he dealt with the situation. He simply said, well, the only sign you'll ever see, and you can still doubt that, is the resurrection. And there's an allusion to Jonah, which again goes back into the Old Testament, as you very well know. So don't bargain with God. You've seen resurrection. I stood outside the garden tomb in Jerusalem where they laid my savior. And the tomb is empty. Now I'm intelligent enough to know that that's a belief statement on my part. That doesn't prove that Jesus is alive. I don't need to have that sort of proof because I see him acting all the time in people's lives. Remember, it was John or Charles Wesley that uh, someone was asking, you know, well, prove this religion. And he was speaking to one of his recent converts. He said, well, you've come home. And he came home to the person's house. And he said, well, where's the proof? He said, look, there's furniture, there's food on the table. I was a drunkard. And now God's changed me and here's the proof. Well, of course we know there's proof and proof. I'm a scientist, I need to be careful. But the resurrection is the ultimate proof. We don't live in a deistic universe. We live in a a universe where God's power is complete and controlled. Now, that's not to underestimate Satan. Believe me, don't ever underestimate Satan. He can be both an accuser, he can be a roaring lion, he can pretend all sorts of things. But neither be fearful of him either. You don't need to be fearful of sin. In the right sense, using fear in the right context, you need to be fearful of God and God only. Five minutes to finish. And the last passage is probably quite the hardest one And they're they're words from Jesus, and I have to leave them with you. I'll try and say something about them. If you go into John's Gospel, chapter 7, or Mark, where is it, Mark 3, you will know that Jesus' family thought he was either mad or deluded. And that's very clear, you can go and check that. So if you have a problem with your family because you're a Christian, you hear what I'm saying? You probably do look mad to them. You're resting the whole of your life and your eternal destiny on something that is unprovable from their perception. They think you're an idiot. They think you're stupid. That's exactly what Jesus had to deal with. Part of me wants to go a little deeper because clearly I don't think you can say that it was his mother who thought that. She knew about the uniqueness of him. (coughs) If nobody else knew, Mary knew she was a virgin when she carried that child. Joseph had died, he was probably an older man quite common in that culture and there are brothers and there was James who we know ultimately was to become the leader of the church but James was really antagonistic about Jesus at that stage until the resurrection so I don't know what that says to you in your context you've probably got lots of unbelieving parts of your normal nuclear family, and they may react in the way I'm indicating. I hope they don't, but they may. They may. In these days of toleration, so-called toleration, the thing that everything is tolerated except people who have personal faith in Jesus, it seems to me. But but you know what I'm saying, and I mustn't get sidetracked, or I'll be going down a different sidetrack. Jesus knew what it was, To find that his spiritual family was more important, let me say this carefully, more important than his actual family. I've said it. I believe that's what the text says. Right? Your spiritual family, because it's an eternal family, is more important than your nuclear family. Don't please put words in my mouth. Your natural family is so precious and so important. But Jesus is saying something so profound. Not all of my family have faith in Jesus. I'm sure some of them think I've totally wasted my life. Given it away needlessly. So here's the word. So in these days... Those days then when Jesus was facing conflict and days when we will face conflict, I've alluded to the conflict that's going on in India, it's unbelievable. People are being martyred further north in Orissa and even further north and things may yet get worse. Even in a developing economy like India, it is unbelievable. I was scrutinized going through immigration and if I wasn't so streetwise... I could have been on the next plane home, I'm sure. Because they are tightening up there. But you're not in India. Neither am I in India now. I'm in Bridgenau. You have to live, I have to live, for Jesus here. There aren't simple instructions on how that happens. But there is someone who indwells us, who will give us instructions. And that's the Holy Spirit. I used an illustration in, um, in India because it's so hot and everything's concrete floors. And I had a, I had a, a, a tumble full of water. And we were talking about, we we're talking from Ephesians 5 about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this was all full. And they're not used, they like people to stand at the front and talk. That's the culture. And I'm a little bit different. And I had this tumble full of water. And I got another tumbler and I said what's in the what's in the tumbler if that is the spirit of God they said the spirit of God so I poured in from my flask some more water and water cascaded everywhere see what spills in out of your life and out of mine is what's inside and if you're full of the spirit of God what will spill from your life is the Spirit of God. And that was the key for Jesus. And that is exactly the key for you. And exactly the key for me. And there's a miracle, 30 seconds short. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of very complicated issues that are spilled from the truth of who Jesus is. And we've been reading about the implications for him when he was alive. And we know that he's still alive and seated at your right hand, that he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. And therefore we ask for each of us as we move into the hours of the rest of this day and the days, the rest of the days of our lives, however many they may be for all of us, May they be full of that spirit that helps us to understand that we live in a powerful universe where God's name is ultimately the power. We do not need to fear Satan. Thank you that you have given absolutely infallible proof of who you were in the resurrection from the dead and that you call us to think beyond the narrow confines of our own little families and even our own little church and even our own little country. And to understand that there's a broken world that needs to hear. In Jesus' name. Amen.